Good morning, church. Let's turn together to the letter of 2 John. And as we get started this morning, I want to just remind us that there are always, there's always a need to be in prayer for one another. There's always a need to be in prayer for one another. One of the quintessential realities of pride in our own hearts and minds is when we feel ourselves flustered and we fail to pray because we're just too aggravated (laughs) or we're too upset with someone as if we haven't offended God, as if he hasn't given us by by his own mercy because of his love for us, his son, to take the place of us in our sin and then credited us the greatness of his righteousness without any merit of our own. So when we get upset about people that don't meet our expectations, we need to praise God that Christ met his. The very last two verses of 2 John say this. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you. I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I'd rather come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Okay. I could preach an entire series on how we should talk more and not use text and social media and everything else. That's not the point. The point is... John's greatest joy in the context of the assembly was to be with the assembly. And he knew that even in writing, that it would never communicate fully the joy and the love he had for them. It's sufficient unto their joy when they're together. But he was missing in that blessing. He wanted to talk much more, much more. And the most important thing that we see in John's writing, in he, re, he basically John just exudes the voice of Jesus. Have you ever known that? You know how some of the apostles, how Paul has his voice. John speaks like Jesus spoke because he's good at quoting Christ. Now why is that? Because John spent more time with Jesus in the flesh than any human being. With their all the hours of a day... Half of those, John and Jesus, were alone. Think about that for a second. Every time Jesus broke away, he'd take three with him, and out of that three, he'd walk off with John. And then he'd vanish and be by himself with the Father. So John has something to say, not just because of the divine work of God the Spirit giving him the words to say, but also because of the divine experience with which he related to the Christ in his incarnation. And all of that, and John yet would not sign his gospel because he was known to be the one whom Christ loved, the beloved disciple. He would not sign his gospel because he did not want people to run after it as some relic, some thing that spoke to his fame. 
And John, if he were alive today, would be easy to fall into having one of the best YouTube channels on theological things and Christology that anybody would have ever could ever imagine. Why? Because this is the guy that was with you know, everybody's like, Paul, well, John was with Jesus. Paul never was. Yet Paul is still authoritative because the risen Christ taught him. You see. The Spirit of God taught those throughout the centuries. Yet we see this humbleness. We see this humility in the apostles that they are not trying to say, listen to me, I'm important. Look what my thoughts are on this. Listen to my commentary. No, they explicitly say it doesn't matter. Paul in 1 Corinthians writes the letter in such a way that when I was in my early 20s, it punched me in the face. Because subconsciously and indirectly, I felt like the more I knew and the better I could teach it and articulate something, the more authoritative that it would become. And not only that, the more effectual that it might be. And Because that's how you're taught, correct? See, if you know how people think, and I know how people think. I, I, I literally have classifications. I do. I have this Rolodex in my head. You know what a Rolodex? No, these young people don't know what a Rolodex. Okay, I have a Rolodex in my head, and, and I just, I see, I see this thumbing through when I think of a psychological profile or a makeup. And I go, you know, you ever had a Rolodex get out of turn? You ever had one fall off your desk? That's a nightmare. You know what a Rolodex is? It's basically cardboard cards that fit inside this little thing that rolled around a wheel like a Ferris wheel. And it had tabs, and you alphabetized your contact information and there was a pot you could write on the bottom and the back and you could okay this is john and john here and here's his address and his phone number and his pager you know this is pager code if he was on a you know a, a big system <laughs> and this is his address this is his uh well there's no email address thing there because no emails during that time uh and then on the back you could write little notes you know john he likes decaf coffee or whatever it might be that you need john's mother's death date was here or whatever if you drop that thing in the floor it's just discombobulated it took you three weeks to get it back to, together it was awful well that's how i think it. i look and i know i know how people think and i've always had this ability to say okay all right so this is who this is this person's thinking this way this person thinking this one this one so i can in this particular speech or presentation i can touch on these things so that i can answer all the questions that are possible coming from my audience. And this is not preaching, of course, but it can be utilized that way. If I wasn't preaching contextually, exegetically, I could, I mean, think of myself, the end game is this. Ah, uh, here's the path. Here are the people. Here are the pieces. Poop, poop, and the puzzle's finished. It happens just that quickly. You know, the expert um, name for someone who does that is a salesperson. You're thinking, this guy's like a genius. No, I'm a salesperson. That's what sales is all about. It's a psychological thing. Relationships are about psychological things. And we all come together and we look at the Bible, and the Bible doesn't deal with these things. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he comes to, he comes to the table and says what? What does he say? He says, I don't come with, with lofty wisdom and lofty words. I'm not coming with eloquent speech. I heard a pastor say one time, well, man, I waxed eloquent on that one, didn't I? And I'm going, Ugh. it's terrible. 
If you came here for high speech and lofty speech, oh my goodness. You better put some AirPods in and turn on something else because you're not going to hear it. And that's not a humble brag. It's just the honesty. I could give it to you. I could spend 75, 80 hours a week and come in here and sound like a philosophy class. And you're going to get a little philosophy today. That's why I'm saying what I'm saying. We're going to talk about truth claims and all sorts of things. We're going to talk about convictions and opposing positions. We're going to, I'm going to bring up some arguments that most of, me, me, most of you may know, by, uh, you know from a, a man by the name of Robert Allman. But it doesn't matter. It's not important. It's not doctrine. But it's the way we think. Paul says that God will destroy the wisdom of the wise. God will destroy, and he has done so. For the word of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Where's the one who's wise, Paul asks? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, you hear that? Through wisdom? The world did not go know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to, the, to those Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men, wiser than the wisdom of men, and the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men. And then he says, don't think that you're smart and you're all that and you're something else. You know, just this morning at 940, I received an email through the church website. Someone wanting to come and to, sh to take this pulpit so that, they, that he can convince you through all of his years of expertise and argument that there is a God. Seriously. He's an apologist. He's like, you think you might want me to come to your church? Here's a list of my things. Here's some books. You know, and I'm sure he probably sent out a thousand of those today. I'm going, 1 Corinthians 1, dude. That's what I want to respond back. I'm like, 1 Corinthians 1. No, thank you. You can't be debated into believing. And just because you cognitively assent to the fact that there is a higher being doesn't mean that you've been born again. And so back to 2 John, you know, John wants to meet with them. He wrote this letter. He wrote his first letter so that the joy of the saints will be full. And beloved, there are a lot of things in this world that destroy our joy. There's a lot of things that destroy our joy. The problem is we've confused joy with happiness. Happiness being temporary, and I know I may be splitting hairs, and it's my definition, semantic, semantic, potato, potato. It doesn't matter. Here's the thing. Happiness can, can, can go. Joy can be fleeting, especially if we focus our joy or we think that our joy comes from that which is temporal. But when we understand the point and the purpose of life and we understand the power and the promises of God, we understand the person of Christ because of the Holy Spirit, because of God's work in us, we have a joy that is sometimes inexpressible. That's what Peter says in his first letter. The joy that is inexpressible. You know what? Inexpressible joy looks like tears sometimes. Looks like despair. Because it's a resolve in the midst of all sorts of things to know that the only foundation 
on which we can stand is the rock of Christ, the gospel of hope, the grace of God. And I believe a lot of times the things that take away our joy are self-inflicted. And I could talk about that and we could have a, a long conversation and we could share and be therapeutic. And we could find some solace in that until we drive home and realize that the furniture is all in the same place. Same rugs are on the same floor and the same paints on the same wall. And nothing's really changed. We just pretended it wasn't. Sometimes I think we bring it on ourselves theologically when we spend so much time ignoring the truth and so much time investing in so many other things rather than eating that which has promised us life. And this is a problem. Over the last two Sundays, we've talked about the idea that there are other Christs in the world. Jesus even said that in Matthew 24. We've seen that John says there, everyone who goes beyond, verse 9 of this text, and does not make himself at home in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever makes himself at home, and I'm using the word abide in a simple definition, whoever rests and sits and stays in the teaching of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this simple, true, foundational, solid teaching, as Paul would say to the Galatians, if someone comes to you with some other teaching that is not the teaching that we brought to you, let them be cut away from you. Let them be separate from you. Do not bring them into the church. Do not give them a platform. Do not point to them and say, Oh, look at this friend of mine, this teacher. This person who has knowledge. See how it's so easy? John's like, I don't want to sit here. I don't want to inundate you with a bunch of writing, though it's effectual by the Spirit of God. I want to see you face to face. People could have easily followed the apostles, and some of them tried to do so, but just like those who tried to follow Jesus, and Jesus would tell the truth about himself, and the people go, well, I'm done with this. I'm done with this. Beloved, there are many other false Christs, and therefore there are many other false teachings concerning Christ. And we need to get to the point where we understand what truth is and how the Scripture relates this truth to us. We are not to receive false teaching and or false teachers in any part of our spiritual journey. We're not to receive what they say. We're not to agree with what they say. We're not to be so ignorant and so unwilling to invest just a little bit of time to peer back behind the curtains or pull down the sheets just a bit or to look under the rug and see what's been swept under. We should not be so afraid to do that because if we do push this stuff aside and not look, eventually our joy is going to wane because we want to start being at odds and we're not dealing with the elephant in the room. You know, what that, you, know what, you know what that means? I mean, you don't ignore an elephant in the room, right? I mean, even a, even a calf would be so intrusive, he, he or she would knock over the first few rows of chairs just turning around, not to count the plop that it might drop and the odor that might ensue. No one ignores an elephant in the room, but beloved, I think false doctrines, false Christ, and false gospels are elephants in the room of evangelical Christianity to the point where I have almost come to completely utilize the term evangelical in a pejorative sense. That means every time I say it, it's negative. Attached to the noun cult. 
as I've been saying for years. And that has gone over the cliff like a lead balloon in the eyes of many people. Because when we are not willing to engage in a very humble and peaceful and loving manner to, uh, to investigate what other people are saying concerning our Christ, but just receive them in a general sense because they said the name Jesus, we are taking part in their wicked works by affirming the false gospel they teach. Now, what does the word gospel mean? It means good news. The word evangel is the Greek translation, good news. Good news, gospel, God speak, God speed, all these different things. Entomology is sort of a side hobby of mine, and I, I like to think about how words grow. It's, I looked at the history of the word wolf yesterday. Why? I don't know. I just stumbled upon it and spent 30 minutes looking <laughs> at a thousand years of the word wolf. That's my hobbies. <laughs> While my wife put out mulch. <laughs> I felt terrible. But we have these words, we have data, we have information, we have theological things. But the question now, what is truth? What is truth? Well, truth is the truth, no matter what you think the truth is. We can believe whatever we want. We can call it fake, false, whatever. We can say, no, that's not right, or that's your opinion, or, that's your interpretation. It doesn't matter. We can all be wrong, but we cannot all be right. And if we're partly wrong, then we're wrong. If we're almost right, we're wrong. Years ago, I had on one of my podcasts, I shared something that I'd written from like 15 years before about the theology of roaches. Because when I was in the fourth grade, fifth grade, fifth grade, I had a biscuit sitting on my plate in the cafeteria at the middle school. And I opened the biscuit, and in the biscuit was a half of a cockroach. Not the whole one. A half. And so I pushed it off my plate. And y'all don't, some of y'all don't know me, but that don't fly. That dog don't hunt in my house. My head, my mind, nothing. I didn't eat for days. I mean, I just could not shake it. Still right now, I'm getting a little nauseated. And that was what, 40 years ago? I don't know. I just can't handle it. So one of my friends sitting over there, why aren't you eating your biscuit? Why aren't you eating your biscuit? Why aren't you eating biscuit? I said, you want it? Yes. And I was like, oh. So she tells the teacher, and the teacher tells me to take it up there. And I take it up there to the lunch lady. She opens the biscuit up, and this half, it was the abdomen portion of this roach. She picks it up and throws it in the trash can and brushes the biscuit off, puts it back, and hands it to me. Like, that dog don't hunt, woman. And I'm, I'm looking at her like, are you serious? And, oh, you want another one? So she takes it, puts it back on the rack, and gives me a new one. Hence, I didn't eat there for a couple of days or weeks. Now, some people that I know are like, what's the big deal? Flick it off. I eat roaches for fun. I mean, you know, I've got some friends who do that. Crickets, roaches, bugs, all sorts of things. Ants, sprinkle a little cinnamon sugar. You know what? I don't even eat pork chops because of the way they tear in my mouth. All right, beyond that, back to the sublime. What's the point? Theology of roaches. How much of a roach would you accept inside your food? What if you went to the restaurant and the roach wasn't in your food? It was just sitting on the plate looking there going, hmm, this is a nice-looking meal. And you shoo it off and it runs on back in the kitchen. Would you still eat it? Some people are like, yeah, it don't bother me. For me, I'm in a sterile environment. If I'm in an operating room and someone says, roach, I'm leaving. If there's food being served. I can't do it, all right? 
It's too much. I don't want to see in the kitchen. I want to pretend like there's nothing back there. I just want the food to come out clean and smelling like bleach. That would be great. That would be great. And we're that persnickety about our food and our eating experiences, but why aren't we that persnickety about our doctrinal purity? How much of the error are you willing to eat? How much of the not gospel are you willing to invade your Christian circles? Now, beloved, we do grow in this. I want to understand that we don't wake up one day and go, I'm pure all the way. No, we grow. We know the truth. We grow in grace and the knowledge of grace, as Peter says, by learning the Bible. And we grow together as a church. But when things start to invade, when things start to infect our food. Now, all of you are going, oh, I'm so sick. Uh, When things start to infect the purity of our feasts, we have to call it out. We have to say this has to be addressed. And I want you to think of something that you know right now, no big deal, but I want you to have it in your mind, something that you know is absolutely true, absolutely true, without a shadow of a doubt, okay? Now, how do you know that? Do you know that because of absolute evidence, or do you know that because you just believe so deeply? Is it evidentiary? Is it something that is a conviction? You see? It's one or the other, right? And sometimes it's a blend of these things. Is it facts or is it faith? What's the difference? What about this? How are you able to rest so confidently in the gospel? The same way so many of the cults of the world and non-believers and false believers rest so confidently in theirs. Because sincerity of faith is not the indicator of truth. Most people I know are sincerely wrong, sincerely confused, and sincerely deceived. And they're sincerely loving, and they're sincerely compassionate, and they're sincerely worshipful. Most people I know, but they're sincerely wrong when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to righteousness, when it comes to justice. And if you're really confidently resting in something, what if somebody comes up with a contradiction who shared the same conviction? What then? That's when ad hominem comes into effect, isn't it? That's when you start saying, your mama. You know, when you can't get in the argument, you just, and that's a terrible thing to say on Mother's Day. What you talking about my mama? I mean, we used to go to blows in junior high school when somebody said your mama. They could have just been, somebody could have asked a question. Hey, who's packed your lunch? And you hear your mama, and you just punch them in the face. I mean, nobody talks about your mama like that down here in the South. That's just, that's just rude. That's what happens. Different opinions. Then we come to this thing in our world where we agree to disagree. You know what that is? That's deception. For those of you who care about Robert Allman, don't worry about it. He came up with an agreement theorem. And that agreement theorem basically says this. Two people rationally considering in a sense, in a very precise sense, with common knowledge of each other's beliefs, cannot agree to disagree. So if what you are saying and you believe is completely different than what this person over here is saying and believe, you two cannot agree to disagree. You can agree that you do disagree, but you can't walk away because something, if you agree to disagree, has been omitted. Something is being withheld. And here's what I think is happening in the church today. I think we're withholding the very gospel. 
because we get to the point where we get the name Jesus, we get somebody with a Bible, they say the word church or they say the label Christian, we go, whoo, praise God, I'm off the hook. I don't have to go any further. And then later on in those relationships when somebody's saying something absolutely nonsense about the revelation of God, as we talked about last week in the Bible, They've created a wholly a whole different Jesus. I want you to hear this. They've created a whole different Jesus. They've created another gospel, which the Bible explicitly condemns. And then we just go, oh, agree to disagree. We're just good friends. You can be friends with lost people, beloved. In a relational sense. But you are not their brothers and sisters. Until God has opened their eyes to show them the truth. How does he do that? Through the hearing of the word. How do you know when the greatest opportunity is for that to come out of your mouth? When someone contradicts the very thing that the Bible says, you can inquire and invest. Invest. I love that word, invest, for numerous reasons. But mostly in the context of the body of Christ, if we're investing, we're not arguing. If we're investing, we're not fighting. If we're investing, we're not debating. If I'm asking you questions and you're giving me answers, we are mutually helping one another because I'm learning your position and then I'm going to share the position of Scripture and vice versa. The sense in which one views or discusses a particular subject will determine the rightness or the truthfulness of that claim or information. In other words, there are people that can be rationally and sincerely wrong, but absolutely right in the way they are seeing and perceiving things. Because sometimes it's the way people are perceiving things. And we have to get to that point. For example, in philosophy, we all are philosophical. That means that we hear things, then we think about them, and we come to conclusions. That's philosophy. That's third grade philosophy. But we all do it. Opinions, thoughts concerning information or viewpoints. And to say, in a sense, X can be true is true. But it does not negate the absolute dogma of Y being true at all times. You didn't know you were going to have algebra this morning, did you? So what makes the claims of Christ according to the gospel absolutely true? Because the claims themselves say so. The Bible says this is the Christ, this is the gospel, this is salvation, this is God's glory, this is the, re- the glory of God, seeing God for who he actually is. This is what the Bible says concerning all things re- through the revelation of God about himself and his people and the salvation of his people. So to have an opposite view or an alternating view is a wrong view. And I think sometimes words need defining because new words can illustrate truths better. And sometimes I think words just need to be put away. But ultimately, words are not heresy until we find out what people mean by them. God the Spirit reveals simple grace, the simple grace of His own essence. Listen to this for a second. In redemption to His people as He wills without words of wisdom. Without great argument. Because what did we just read in 1 Corinthians 1? Because if we go to the argument and to the wisdom, the cross loses its power. Loses its power. A is not A. This is a microphone. This is a pencil. How can this be a microphone? This is not a microphone. A and not A 
do not stand together. The gospel and not the gospel do not stand together. That's as deep as I want to get into that. Truth can be understood and agreed upon by arguments of logic. Yes, that is valid, rational, reasonable, and true. God-given faith, listen to this, yields such ability, yields such agreement. So when God regenerates us, we do agree on the rational, reasonable, logical truths. But agreement of those truths is not regeneration, as we'll see in a minute. Resting faith or saving faith rests in the nature of these truths as they are effectual, sufficient, powerful, promising, hopeful, absolute without change or movement. In this line of thinking, I want to talk about some things that are not the gospel. And then I want to close the entire message out with a clear reality on where saving faith should a clear teaching on on the reality of where saving faiths must look. And that is the gift of God. Differentiating ideas about Christ. Talked about this last week and the week before. His person, his work, the efficacy of his work are, are not the gospel. If they differ from what we've learned in scripture. So teaching things that differentiate from what the scripture teaches concerning Christ, cannot yield regeneration by God the Spirit. Now let me explain what I'm going to say, because I'm going to say that phrase probably eight or nine times in the remainder of, of, of this teaching. To go to someone and say, Jesus is a cheeseburger and he likes mustard on the top and you're the pickle. It's not the gospel. And so if I say that to you and you go, you know what, I believe that, give me two cheeseburgers and you eat them, you have not been born again. All right? This is some highbrow thinking here, folks. You know that, did you? This is high intellectual <laughs> cheeseburger theology. Got roach theology, now we're on to cheeseburgers. Soon we'll be on to pizza, then desserts. And then someone says, okay, I want these cheeseburgers. They take and they invite themselves to believe and to receive and to eat and all this kind of stuff. And then we say, oh, look at there, you're my brother. Well, no, 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 Jesus is not a cheeseburger. That's a differentiating view that the Bible doesn't teach. So someone who says, man, I know that I believe in Jesus. Well, who is Jesus? He's a cheeseburger. Well, you, you don't have saving faith. Can I say it any simpler? Who is Jesus? Oh, he's the, he's the first created being of all creation, says some people. Now, the Bible says differently. You're you don't have faith in the right Jesus. You're not believing. You've not been shown of God. Oh, well, 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 Jesus this, Jesus that. And we've gone through some of those. I mean, I've taught for the last few weeks, few years, but even over the last few weeks, about some distinctions that have to be made concerning the person, the work of Jesus Christ. He is God in the flesh. He is the second person of the persons of God, the Trinity as we call it. These are revealed in Scripture and cannot be refuted. We can philosophize against them. We can debate them. We can argue. But we cannot negate them. Someone who refuses to see what the scripture says concerning the nature of Christ and his divine person and his human person. 
has not been taught of God. In the simple sense of saying, this is what the Bible says, do you see it? Well, I see it, but I'm just not going, I'm not going to believe that now. Yeah, you ever heard somebody say that? Yeah, I see it. I'm just not going to believe that now. If I had a dollar for everybody told me I wouldn't worship a God like that, I'd have a lot of money in the bank. Well, that's not the God I know. You, you said it. And then I've even had people say, well, who do you think you are to be so right? That's the cool thing. I'm a nobody and a nothing, and I have nothing else to say except what's written in the Bible. So when we get to the business of actually reading the entire letters of the Scripture in whole, in one sitting, and learning that it's actually one communication, not a whole bunch of little fortune cookies stuck together by glue, then we begin to be revealed things by the Holy Spirit. Here's another thing. Making decisions to do something related to one's eternal salvation is not gospel. Therefore, teaching these things do not yield regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Well, what you going to do with the gospel? What you going to do with it? You ever heard that? That's Antichrist. Jesus died, now you got to do something. And I know we can split hairs on what we really mean, but we know what I really mean by that. You better give your life to Jesus. You better devote your life to Jesus. You better serve Jesus. You better join the church. You better be baptized. You better come down the aisle. You better say this prayer. You better really, really mean it. I always found that odd with the childhood evangelists that I saw in this community. Anybody don't want to go to hell, stand up. I mean, everybody stands up except the one stubborn guy, you know. Ain't going to get me out of the seat. That's a challenge for an evangelist. Don't stay seated. He'll get you up. Simon says, stand up. Everybody's up. I mean, think about this for a second. Now, if you want to know that you 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 have eternal life, all you got to do is step right out, step right out, come down this aisle. It's about Bob Barker. You're the next contestant on The Price is Right. The Christ is right, but it's wrong. It's wrong. And you ask that person then, you ask that person a week from then, you ask that person a year from then or ten years, how do you know that you have eternal life? Because I came down the aisle and I accepted Jesus for that preacher guy that sweated all over me. He spit all over my mama too. He's praying over us. He spit all over us. I still got his salave in the back of my Bible of Revelation chapter 3 where he scared me to death. I didn't want to go to hell, so I came out and walked the aisle. And now I'm free. Free of what? Sanity? You're not free. That's bondage. You are agreeing. You are testifying that you saved yourself through some choice or some volition. This is not the work of God, the Holy Spirit. When people teach that man has the freedom to apprehend spiritual things apart from the Spirit of God, is a false teaching. It's an antichrist teaching. When people say that somebody's choosing or walking or praying or baptism or will or desire can have a, an effect on their eternal security, this is a false gospel. God does not, use, does not use these processes in regeneration. Through bold proclamation of the truth, God, who said, let there be light and darkness, has shown in our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Regeneration means made alive, born again. John 3 is one of the primary texts in which we find the teaching there from Jesus. And then we see the apostles reiterating this teaching over and over again. Regeneration is not this spontaneous event that happens in a vacuum outside of the influence of the written word heard or read. 
Being born again is not something you can just be, you know what, I'm just going to get on this roller coaster and, oh Lord, help me! And you're born again. I mean, you know, this is not how it works. You're not in the midst of watching, you know, football and all of a sudden you just get this urge and understanding of the gospel. No, the gospel has to be taught. God uses natural means through which supernatural realities come. God regenerates as He sees fit, when He sees fit, at the occasion He sees fit. So if you hear the gospel today and then a week or two from now, it comes to your mind and God shows you the truth and causes you to rest in that truth, who is Jesus Christ, you have been made alive. But you can't be taught something that's not true, trust in it, and then say you're born again. Because what you're born into is just another way of humanizing redemption and spirituality. It's not true. You have to be made new concerning spiritual things. And you have to be given understanding. And you have to be given a heart to rest in Christ. Righteousness is the central matter of redemption. You know that, right? You know it all boils down to righteousness. That's the whole point. Righteousness is the, is the creme de la creme of the point of God's essence. He is always in right standing with himself. He is the source and from which all right things flow. Goodness and holiness and rightness all come from God. They tell of God. They demonstrate God. They are God in that sense. God is righteous. Let's put it the other way around so I don't get all weirded out here. So if man is not righteous and God is righteous, how can, man make, how can God make man righteous? And here's the answer. Destroy him. So you didn't think I was going to say that, did you? For the wages of sin is death. This is the righteousness of God and justice. God can make all of us righteous by eternally destroying us. Forever and ever. Done. That is a right and good act. And the world in which we live, especially since the middle of the 19th century, wants to say righteousness is something that we can either do of our own accord, or with God's help, or that we can accept. It's like a bag of something. It's a bag of goodness. Are you going to dig into the good bag or the bad bag? And there are a lot of different historical iterations of this. And there's all sorts of different levels of heresies concerning these things. But beloved, this central matter of righteousness, Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God. And He became sin in the place of the elect alone. And in His death, He satisfied the righteousness of God in justice and wrath. And in His resurrection... He proved that He truly was God and that even in His humanity He truly was righteous. And the promise of imputation goes both ways. The elect's guilt have been put on Christ who was not a sinner and who had no sin. He died as a substitute for them to satisfy God's righteousness. Then He was raised to life and the righteousness of Christ and His perfect obedience, all of that is credited to the lives of the elect by which God is righteous, granting faith to His people whose sins are already paid for. This is good news, beloved. I promise you, there is no other good news out there 
Because if there's any news related to redemption that has anything to do with me or you and what we can do to affect it, keep it, or be sincere about it, we're going to go a real short thing. It's like a firecracker. I love to blow stuff up. I got a little bit of redneck in me, even though I don't like bugs. I don't, mind, I don't want bugs in my food. I like bugs. I like to blow stuff up. The only problem with explosions is they're quick. They're just fast, and you can't put enough of them together safely without tilting the earth in this part of the world or blowing out your neighbor's windows even though they live two miles away. You've got to be careful. You've got to watch out. B-A-T-F. Don't want them knocking on your door. How much tannerite did you use, Mr. Tippins? Well, I needed a pond, so we have a pond. You know. But isn't that the way it is? Boom, it's gone. It's over. Firecrackers, they're too tiny. I can clap my hands louder than a firecracker now. What I did, as a boy, I'm like, I want to be a firecracker clapper. Don't ask me why. And that's sort of how some people's spirituality is. Well, I found Jesus. Pop. Oh, I believe the Bible. Look at that. I'm going to preach to everybody. Pop. What are they doing now? Nothing. It's not that they fall into some kind of wicked debauchery. They just don't care anymore. They just go away. This flash-in-the-pan Christianity is because so many people are converted falsely under false teaching, under false pretenses and human decisions and human actions. They have not been declared righteous by God through Jesus Christ. Well, they may have. But until they believe, they are not counted in that number. Universal teachings about blanket salvation is an antichrist gospel. Well, Jesus died for the whole wide world and everybody in it. That's how I heard it. I've heard that. I've only heard that in that accent in my life. Jesus died for the whole wide world and everybody in it. Guess what that means? Everybody is going to have eternal life. Nope, you got to accept it. Lie. The Bible doesn't say that. you got to believe it. Believe that Jesus died for the whole wide world? Everybody in it? How can I believe that when the Bible hasn't said that? Well, John 3. I've taught it a thousand times. It's not the gospel. It's not good news. Blanket salvation or blanket affection toward all humanity does not coincide with the teaching of the good news in Scripture. Telling someone that God desires them to be in heaven if they would just do something, make a choice, or choose a specific way is untold in the Scripture. God cannot use this type of teaching to bring about new life. You might think, well, what in the world? Well, faith, regeneration, is brought about by the work of God through the teaching of the true gospel, the expression, the exposition, the exegeting of who He is in the Son. And faith rests in what it looks at, looks like, looks at, not like. And mostly, faith knows what righteousness is. You know how you are counted righteous before God because Christ's righteousness is yours. How can he do that? And I'm a sinner because Christ took your sin guilt and satisfied it. This is called the atonement. The atonement is at the center of the gospel also. We can also understand it as the redeeming sacrifice, substitutionary satisfaction, appeasement of wrath, 
propitiation, justification, all these things go hand in hand. The payment of penalties. Christ's death accomplished the payment of penalties for a people. So if Christ died for every person in the world, then all the persons of the world's sins are paid for. But he did not. The scripture says that he died for his people. The very beginning days, in the very beginning times of creation, when the scripture shows us the gospel, it is that Christ would come. The Christ would come into the world and the Christ would save his people from their sins. If what Jesus accomplished was nothing but an opportunity, then he's not God and you cannot be saved. Let's talk about a few examples of that and then let's get to the gospel. Universalism, we've already talked about that. Jesus paid for the sins of all humanity. No one will perish. Nonsense. There's this idealistic idea that's kin to that. Jesus paid for the sins of all humanity. But each man has to make a choice as to whether or not he's going to dip his hands in the bag and get the payment. Well, what payment are you getting? How in the world, if something's paid, does it not apply? I talked about that last week. Every payment is reconciled. And it's reconciled by the one who owns the accounts and reconciles the accounts. There's two specific isms that have come out of historical theology, and one of them is Pelagianism, which is predominantly the focus and the thinking of our current culture. And Pelagius had this idea that all humanity was good, everybody was born innocent and righteous, and until they made a willful act of sin against the, against the known command of God, they were not guilty of sin. Thus, they did have eternal life until the point they sinned. Where's that found in the Bible? I have no idea. For all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And that's just a real quick proof text. And so if man would just change from his sinful ways, see that Jesus gave the example, accept the sacrifice that Jesus provides and make it effectual for his life and stay in it, then he'll have eternal life. He'll be righteous. That's not true. The Bible doesn't teach that. You can't choose to stop sinning and you can't choose to accept Christ's offering. He either gave himself for you or he did not. He either paid for your sins or he did not. He either satisfied the wrath of God or he did not. That's what the Bible teaches. Another ism that's very prominent amongst us today is what we would call Arminianism, based from the man, well, the man's, it's not his real name, but Arminius, which says that man is unable to come to spiritual things, to understand God's sovereign work in righteousness, but God makes all men able. He spreads a little grace, they call it prevenient, the grace that goes before, spreads a little grace and everybody sort of woke up spiritually and then they make the right choice. What are we choosing? Where in the gospel proclamation has there ever been a choice? Choose this day whom you shall serve. That's Joshua telling the Jews to get with the program. Are you going to keep walking out here like dummies? We've been out here for 40 years. That's what Joshua was saying. Moses died for the love of all things. Because y'all drove him nuts and he beat a rock and God killed him. Screamed at a rock. Stop! Are you going to serve the Lord? I'm serving the Lord. And everybody in my house is serving the Lord. And all the people following me are serving the Lord. Where are you going to go? You can stay out here if you want to. I'm going to the promised land, cuz. That's Joshua. That's the context of that. It has nothing to do with eternal salvation. It has nothing to do with the gospel of free and sovereign grace. Man is not able to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's not about accepting the truth. 
It's about knowing the truth, coming to the knowledge of the truth. It's unbiblical. Some of the things that come out of that are decisionism. Have you chosen to accept Christ? Have you ex- accepted Christ into your heart? Have you invited Christ into your heart? Have you given your life to I mean, these? Not only do these phrases find no merit in the context of the Holy Writ, the idea of them find no merit there. And honestly, they're very contemporary. Mid-19th century, seriously. Mid-19th century with which a new religion was born under the man Charles Finney, up today, Moody, Graham, and so on and so forth to the evangelical cult that we see today. And it is so prominent that it has invaded almost nearly every mainline denomination in the world. Decisionism. Works, faith, works assurance, works resting. That's another one. Well, you saved by grace, but you stay by works. You know? No, you can't. If that which saved you cannot preserve you, it didn't save you. I mean, sticking your finger in the hole in the Titanic while the whole front thing is flooding with water is not salvation. It's a joke. Well, this side of the boat won't sink. I got it. Baloney. You've got to get off that thing. You've got to get off of works. You've got to get off of self-sufficiency. Because what is self-sufficiency? What is works? What is decisionism? Nothing but self-righteousness. It's just self-righteousness. It's just another way in which our human nature tells us that we can do something for God. And beloved, and I hate to say this, but this has given birth to almost all evangelical style evangelism that I know of. I read a, a, a dear friend's blog yesterday, and his gospel is terrible. It's free and sovereign grace, and then what one must do. What one must do in order to know that they're born again. They must have a life that epitomizes a certain type of righteousness that's not defined. They must know, you can know that you have eternal life because you don't like sin. Well, let me ask you a question. Is there a sin in your life that you do like? You like talking trash about people when they drive like idiots? If you didn't like it, you wouldn't do it. Now, you may feel guilty later. I'm so sorry. Later, guilt is not disdain. I'm just being honest. See, this is where I get in a lot of trouble. You're just a preacher of licentiousness. People can just live like they want to live. Okay, go ahead, do it. What's that got to do with your eternal life? Nothing, but it's going to mess your relationships up here. It's going to defame the name of Christ who saved saved you from your sins. Why would we want to go back into sin? Of course we have a manner of life that's worthy of the calling of the gospel. But I'll be honest with you, in the evangelical South, it's a real easy fix, isn't it? Hide your drinking, your smoking, your music, your movies, your pictures, and your fast cars. Don't let them know you got it. And you're as good a Christian as you're going to get. What is that? That's a false gospel. Well, if you was really a Christian, you wouldn't. Wouldn't what? If you were really a Christian, you wouldn't tell somebody to do some nonsense that could affect their own salvation. Instead, you would proclaim a finished salvation that God has not offered but has applied to his people. And beloved, we've already talked about election last week, electing grace, electing 
This is the heart of God's righteousness. The only way that the true righteousness of God can be given is by His hand, by His contract, by His covenant that He fulfills. And then He promises the outcome of this finished covenant is that He will grant us faith. Now, everybody in here, turn to Hebrews 10. We don't have a lot of time. And we think about faith. I taught many, many weeks on faith out of Hebrews 11. But the true epitome of faith and the centrality of faith, what it believes in, is found in Hebrews 1 through 10. And I want to talk about it very quickly in the next few minutes. But if you start in chapter 10, you start to see that there's a shadow that Paul's talking about of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. He's saying that the religious works and the sacrifices of antiquity have no effect on God's righteousness, on God's justice. They're just a picture. Okay, so in this now, we, we would see that when we worship, if we were called to worship and then we lay a sacrifice on the altar, but we know we have sin, when the sacrifice is laid down, we're reminded of God's mercy. We're reminded of the cost of, of, of sin. We're reminded of God's grace to accept that sacrifice as a reminder of what He has promised, to send Jesus Christ as the ultimate and only sacrifice. Not the final, but the only true. All the others were just pictures of it. Then we can worship with a, with, a, with a pure heart. But then what happens? We go home. We get in traffic. We get upset with the kids. We're just frustrated. We don't want to go to work tomorrow. We complain. We have an ill spirit. We get a little selfish. We binge something on television instead of doing this. We waste time. We do all sorts of things. And then we feel guilty again. And then we've got to do more sacrifices in order to appease our conscience. Well, that is over. Sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, verse 5 of chapter 10 of Hebrews. But a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you take no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written in me of the scroll of the book. And so all this leads up, talks about the priesthood, and talks about how they serve daily, washing, bowing, praying, bathing, washing, pouring, killing, burning. Constantly sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice over and over again. And none of them were effectual. But what was effectual, look at verse 14 of chapter 10 of Hebrews. For by one single offering, He, Jesus Christ, has perfected for all times those who are being set apart for Him. That's what the word sanctified means, those who are holy. Once and for all, for all time. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to us. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That is what it means to write the righteousness of God on the minds and the hearts of, their, of his people, is that their sins are forgiven. And that's Jeremiah 31, by the way. And where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So Christ's atonement... Wipe the slate clean forever. It's over. His death washed it away. No matter what you do with it, His death washed away the sins of all of His people. Just like that. And verse 19 is where faith really starts to take picture. Therefore, brothers, sisters, since we have confidence to enter 
the holy places, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, here's the command, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance. Full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us not let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as the day of Christ draws near. Now we're going to what worry about 26 through 31 or to the end. We're going to unpack that very quickly. And the question is, what does it mean to have confidence? And this is the difference between the man-made false Christ and false gospel and the God-proclaimed, revealed gospel that is found and the Christ that is found in the Scripture. The Christ that is found in the Scripture has effectually done the work of redemption. Salvation is done. Jesus said it is finished. He wasn't talking about the fact that he was done with the crucifixion. He was done with the will of God and the price for sin. And the Bible proclaims to the nations, Christ has saved His people from their sins. This is how it was. This is the promise. This is what it did. Here it is. Believe in Him. Rest in Him. That's it. And until the Holy Spirit opens the hearts of His people and His minds to... Which means He's gifted them faith... He's changed the disposition of our minds to see and rest. We'll always be coming up with little trinkets to hang on the the trim of the tree. We'll always be trying to find a way to fertilize the roots. And we won't have confidence. What do we have confidence for in chapter 10 there? To enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. I've said this a thousand times over. This is not, I don't even need to preach this. I've preached this recently on midweek. So if you want to hear some, some longer discussion on this, you can go to the church website and listen to the Hebrews 10 messages. But ultimately, to have confidence means that you have guarantee, you have assurance. He uses that term, we have assurance, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. We have hope, we have knowledge, we have understanding, we have peace, we have assurance. We have confidence. If you're confident of something, do you second guess it? No, you don't second guess it. You just rest in it. Sometimes we're overly confident. Sometimes we're overly confident of what we can do. I used to be overly confident of what I could do with my body, what I could do with my hands. And nobody's going to whip my behind until they did. You know? Nobody's going to beat me up until I pick myself off the ground. And then I had to gain more confidence to get back in there. Have a wreck in your car, you're just sort of a little loose driving. You don't have confidence. Otherwise, you're like driving with your knee, going 80 miles an hour at a cheeseburger, not Jesus, in a milkshake. <clears throat> Terrible combination. Die and have high cholesterol. You have confidence. It's ridiculous. No, nah, I'll be all right, says the man that falls off the house. What do we have confidence to do? Walk into the presence of God Almighty Himself. The symbolic reality of what Paul is teaching here is that we have the ability 
And we have been brought into the presence of God as pure, righteous people because Christ's sacrifice has set us in that place. So we get to walk into the holy courts of heaven and say, hey, pops. And I'm not trying to be sacrilegious. I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be overly intimate in my expression of this. I don't, I don't call my dad, yo, what's up, old man? I mean, you know, I'm respectful to my own earthly father. I'll be respectful to my heavenly father. But I'm saying we have that same intimacy. Our children come into our presence as parents. We put them first. Their needs come before the needs of others, don't they? We don't have to worry do we have a ticket to get in behind stage to see our celebrity dad. We just walk in. We've got the ticket. We've got access. We are able, by the blood of Jesus, to walk into the presence of God without fear, without trembling, without hesitation, because we have been made righteous through the imputation of righteousness from Jesus Christ Himself. How could God do that? Because God imputed our guilt to Him and killed Him for it. That's what faith is. Confidence. Confidence to know that Christ has finished the work of salvation for His people. And it's not the dead animals. It's not the animals that are, that are burned up. It's not the blood of these animals who now no longer live. But it is a new and living way that He opened through us, for us through the curtain. In His life, He gave life. In His death, He gave life. In His life, He promises life. And so we have a great high priest who now has finished the work in chapter 1. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. He sat down. He's finished. He's not going to stand up again. He's not going to sacrifice himself again. He's not going to pour his blood again. It's over. There is no more sacrifice for sin, Paul would say later in this very text. Because there's some warnings here that scare the bejesus out of people. Oh, does that mean? No, not if you're resting in the sufficiency of Christ. Not if you have confidence to know that Christ satisfied the wrath of God. Not if you know that your righteousness by the Spirit of God, that you know your righteousness is not yours, but it's His. So we draw near with a true heart. We run into the presence of God with a true heart. We come into the presence of God with full assurance of faith. Our hearts are sprinkled clean. We're not worried about our sin. We're not scared. Oh, God's going to know what I've been doing. Oh, what I've been thinking, what I've been saying. Listen, He knows already. He satisfies His wrath. He satisfied His wrath on everything that you will ever do wrong on the day of atonement at the death of Jesus. And we have been washed. We've been cleaned. So let us hold the confession of our hope, Jesus Christ the righteous, without wavering, How can we stand on such conviction? For He who promised is faithful. Who's faithful? Christ is faithful. Is James Tippins faithful? Not at all. I'm a faithful person, but there's some things I'm not even able to do that I should be able to do. There's some things that I can't accomplish. Christ is faithful. God has faithfully redeemed His people. And our joy, our joy is complete in Christ when we together hold to the doctrine taught us by Christ that we have gone through and gone over over the last few weeks. Now, the final thing to think about is this. Where does that leave the majority of professing Christians in our world? It leaves them hopeless. Hopeless. 
not mistaken, not wrong, not confused, hopeless. Except they hear the truth. So teach them the truth. That's one of the reasons we're here. I've got over 30 questions stacked up, but I'm not going to do theology and call for the next few weeks. I'm not going to have midweek for the next few weeks. Um, taking a little time to deal with some stuff. We've got a wedding. We've got some graduations to deal with and some other stuff. So just going to take a little break for midweek and our Sunday nights. But I've got a lot of questions, and I look at all these questions every week, and I see that so many of them center on the fear of doing what is right. And there's nothing wrong with being concerned about doing what is right, seeking wisdom. But I think a lot of them are motivated by the fact that the gospel is not present in the hearts of these people. They want to prove to themselves in their own conscience that they're okay with God. So they want to make sure that they're doing everything possibly, possible the correct way. Whereas if they just could hear the gospel and God would grant them the salvation and the repentance and the knowledge of the truth of what God, of what he has accomplished in Christ, then their questions, though maybe the same, would be from a different point of view. Their perspective would be, I want to serve the Lord in righteousness rather than sustain it or earn it or labor over it. Nothing that you do can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus except believe a false Christ. Or a false gospel. You know what's really stressful about it? Is that I know that a majority of everybody that I know who says they're in the faith, they're not in the faith. So we have a lot of work, beloved, to do in prayer. We have a lot of work to do in preparation. We need to be learning and helping each other grow to be able to give a defense for the gospel. Because the true good news is that Christ has satisfied God's wrath. That the gospel is good news because there is nothing that we can do to affect it. To earn it. Or to command God concerning it. We, in the timing that the Lord has seen, have been given faith to believe in this proclamation. To trust and to know Him. To know that our eternal life is secure and we can't mess it up. Isn't that good? How many things have I messed up this week? I can't count. I stopped counting. I can't mess up my salvation. It is secure in the one who is faithful. Let us pray and prepare our hearts for the table as we remember that great salvation. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to... Lord, to ramble a little bit and, and to talk about things that are necessary and to expressly discuss false gospels. But most importantly, Lord, we thank you that you've given us the truth, that we can rejoice in it. Lord, that we do not have to work and worry and labor, but that we can truly rest in your promises and in your power. Because Jesus Christ, your Son, has done all that He is, has promised to do. He has satisfied our sin debt. Lord, help us to be gentle and kind and patient with so many who do not know the truth. Help us to be instruments of mercy. and Help us to be 
prophetically minded as we teach and talk and have conversations about these things. Not to become, you know, nonchalant, Father, or angry or heady or prideful, but Lord, just patient. For in time you will draw all of your sheep to the voice of your Son, whom you have given all the elect. And Father, we come because you have brought us here. And we worship the Christ who has given his life and who has been raised to life. And as we take the table today, Father, help us to be mindful of this great sacrifice, of this mercy, of this great love that you've given to your people. Father, help us to be mindful of our responsibilities to one another and to the world. To live the gospel and grow in our knowledge of the grace that you've given us through your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.